On today's episode of the Clinical Excellence Podcast, we have Dr. Philip Hoffman talking about discontinuing cancer treatment. But if it comes to the point that only, you know, having 10 people run in here and, you know, do a resuscitative effort or put you on a breathing machine, I don't think that's a good plan because I think that'll be prolonging a bad situation rather than getting you over a hump here. We're back with another episode of the Clinical Excellence Podcast, sponsored by the Buxbaum Institute. During this podcast, we discuss, dissect, and promote clinical excellence. We review research pertinent to clinical excellence. We invite experts to discuss topics that often challenge the physician-patient relationship. And we host conversations between patients and doctors. I'm Adam Seafew, and today I'm joined by Dr. Philip Hoffman. Dr. Hoffman is a clinical professor at the University of Chicago. He's an expert in cancers of the lung, breast, and esophagus, and the author of more than 80 journal articles. He is a master in the Academy of Distinguished Medical Educators and a senior faculty scholar in the Buxbaum Institute for Clinical Excellence. Most importantly, he is a teacher worshipped by generations of students, residents, and fellows. He continues to spurn PowerPoint. Phil, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I've got some, I don't know, maybe difficult questions, maybe questions that are so um, sort of natural to you that there'll be no problem. Um, As an oncologist, I'm going to assume that most of your initial conversations with patients are about treatment options. And this is probably true whether the patient has just been diagnosed with a malignancy or has already been treated and is coming to you with a poor response to their treatment or recurrence. When do you begin discussing the option of actually not treating their disease? Well, it's a good question. The There are sort of many points where this could come up, and it isn't necessarily only the situation where maybe uh, we don't have very good options remaining, and therefore we ought to think about discontinuing treatment. Uh, <clears throat> if I may, I'll think about a, a different situation, which is um, when we're f- first meeting a patient and discussing the, the treatment options, one of the key points is what is the goal of treatment? And is the goal curative intent or is the goal more palliative intent, prolongation of life, improvement of symptoms, and so on? Uh, if the goal is cure, then I think we typically want to go all out and be aggressive and take on toxicities that we might not otherwise want to take on. But in many cases, of course, in medical oncology, the goal is more limited. And although we might be able to extend the patient's life by years, uh, the ultimate expectation is that the patient will succumb to the problem. And so one of the key first questions is, if what is that goal? And sometimes when the goal is uh, palliative, and if the disease is uh, somewhat indolent in its behavior, sometimes we'll actually depalliate, if I can <laughs> coin a term, the patient by starting treatment. And uh, the way I s- tend to put it with patients is, you know, I could start you on treatment now and I could probably make your scans look prettier in a few months, but I'm not sure we should do that because you're not having a lot of symptoms right now. We can't get rid of this problem altogether. And 
in my experience, you won't be any further behind the eight ball or less likely to respond to treatment if we wait three months or six months and kind of see what the pace of disease is. And sometimes that three or six months can be extended into a year or two where, again, the patient has lots of disease, but they're functioning very well. And why should they take on the burden of uh, side effects and risk of treatment, again, just to make the scam look better. So you're not getting them concerned about progression-free survival and making sure that they're not progressing? <laughs> well, progression, I mean, progression is what ultimately will happen in situations like that, but sometimes it's so slow. And it it is, I mean, it's a difficult uh, decision sometimes for a patient to feel like, well, I've got this serious illness and I'm not being treated. You know, uh, is that... Is that safe? And you know, I'll invite them to get another opinion and that and that sort of thing. I mean, in some ways, one of the current uh, frontiers of oncology treatment in general is the question of de-escalation. Uh, that we've been in in the custom for decades of being very aggressive and maximally aggressive. But we're realizing that, you know, maybe people don't need to be treated quite as long as we've been doing. Or maybe there are are biomarkers we can discover that tell us that this patient could get along with a little less aggressive therapy or maybe a a shorter course. Um, Although that's not, you know, what we're what we're talking yeah. about here. Let me ask you, my my progression-free survival comment was kind of a joke, but but actually, I mean, I've had experiences with patients with, say, you know, a labral tear in their shoulder, for instance, who's, you know, not a major league pitcher, you know, who's, I don't know, you know, 50-year-old man, um, who's doing fine, who has, you know, basically very mild symptoms only with real exertion. And the patient sort of wants to have surgery because they know there's something wrong there, right? Um, and I'm often in the position saying, you know, you're doing fine. And if you have surgery, you're setting yourself up for sort of three months of misery after this surgery. Do you have patients who, even though you're sort of confident that we're doing the right thing, you know, not actively treating them, um, but maybe imaging is getting worse, that patients are kind of driven by that to feel like I need more therapy? Um, you mean driven by the fact that, oh, this scan's a little yeah. worse than the last yeah. one. So yeah. we really, uh, yeah, sometimes, yeah. and sometimes they'll push. And I I won't refuse right. to treat right. uh, unless I think it's just absolutely the wrong thing to yeah. do. But, but knowing that eventually we're going to be starting treatment, I'm certainly willing to, right. uh, you know, to move in. But I want them to understand what the goal is. Um, and sometimes I get the, the complete opposite uh, sort of situation, which doesn't happen very often. But, I mean, I recall a patient, a uh, young woman in her late 40s, I think, who uh, had a recurrence of breast cancer. And it was a brand of breast cancer that was likely to respond to a whole variety of treatments. Yeah, yeah. And she had had no treatment whatsoever yet for recurrent breast cancer. And she was very upset, of course, by the news. And she said, you know, I I just really don't want to go through treatment again. I 
you know, just leave me alone. I, and in, in a situation like that, I'm almost not willing right, to right. allow them to make a decision to not have treatment. Of course, if that's the ultimate decision, but that's the sort of patient I would stand on my head and say, no, yes. you're, you're going to be missing out on years of progress that have occurred uh, with treatment. Uh, why would you, you know, let me really, this is this next treatment is really likely to be very well tolerated and not mess up your life too much. Let's at least give it a try. Yeah. That's certainly a conversation I've become more comfortable with as I've gone on in my career. The like, yeah, it's your decision, but you would be making a mistake you know, yes. to make this decision. Right, absolutely. Um, to be as clear as possible. So let me, um, kind of going back a little bit to the initial question, and this comes a from some experiences I've had that when you're treating somebody, and let's say, you know, this is palliative therapy, you could certainly continue treatment. That would make sense. But there's also an argument to be made that, you know, maybe what we're offering, um, balancing quality of life and length of life is not really the right thing to be doing. Um, do you sort of you know, need to throw in the phrase, you know, remember, we can discontinue treatment at any time. Is that kind of a reminder that needs to be spoken? Well, I'm certainly not afraid to say that yeah. uh, or feel like, oh, my goodness, the patient's going to think I'm giving up on him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, patients commonly will ask me, well, what if I do nothing? That's right. a very common question at the early on in, in, in our interactions. And, you know, sometimes I'll joke with them, well, you'll have a very short survival because your wife will kill you if you make that decision. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, I'll, I'll usually answer that honestly and I say that, you know, well, if you, you know, I'll give them some range of time yeah, that yeah. I think is likely to be if they choose not to have treatment. And that is a legitimate option. But you know, as you've indicated, that conversation usually comes up when things are somewhat more progressed. Sure, sure. In that situation, I definitely don't like the notion of, well, you know, uh, an algorithm. Well, you know, step one is this regimen and step two is that yeah. regimen, because I think that the patient's performance status and how well they've been tolerating treatment so far really has to figure into it. And And I think that if I feel that a patient would probably do better and feel better if they're near the, getting near the end mm -hmm. by not having treatment, I'm not afraid to say that. And I will, in fact, encourage it because I'll, I'll often use, say, a comment such as um, that <clears throat> we may not have a lot of uh, control over at this point how much time there is, but right. we do have control over how that time is spent. And yes, I could give you another round of, of yeah. treatment, but I'm worried that in your current, you're, you're weak, you're having, you know, it's hard for you to even get out of bed in the morning or, you know, get up and walk the dog or whatever. Uh, I'm just worried that I'm going to make you feel even more weak and the likelihood of another course of treatment helping you is small. Mm -hmm. And maybe we'd be better off, you know, leaving you alone for a while. And I'm willing to, and sometimes the patient will say, well, we'll suggest, how about if we take a little time off, let me get a little bit stronger, and then we'll see about that. Yeah. And 
I will agree to that, especially if it comports with what I'm going to recommend. But I'll also make sure that they don't have an undue expectation. You know, I'll tell them, I'm not so sure you, you will make a big change, but you might. So right. let's give, why don't we see how you do for a couple of weeks? Right. And sometimes it's the residual toxicity of the last treatment that's got them down yeah. and they might come back yeah. a little bit rallied. It's interesting that that's an experience that I've had and maybe it's in patients we've shared where, you know, me as the primary care doctor often feels in an uncomfortable position because sometimes that feels like the patient is putting off the decision in a way and is kind of making a decision by putting off the decision. The, I'm going to take some time to see if I get better to restart therapy. And you sort of know, know, they're not going to get better um, because the only thing that's going to get them better is therapy, but that's probably not in the cards. And you often feel like, well, this is part of their denial that like, I'm not ready to stop right now, um, but I do want to give it some time and see what happens with the understanding that, you know, what's, what happens is probably not going to be good. Well, that's a, that's a very common scenario. And it's one that is, it's a somewhat difficult one to navigate because when patients are failing, there's some resources that they can take advantage of, sure. like hospice, uh, for example, uh, that can make things a lot easier for them at home and with, for their families. And I try to make it clear that, well, they say, well, so you're giving up. Well, no, we're not giving up, but we, I, I, the way I put it is, especially in these situations where I say, well, I'm, I'm hoping maybe in the next couple of weeks I'll pick up a little bit. I'll say, well, you know, in the meantime, I think you're missing out on some services yeah. that could really make things a lot better. And, and if you rally, if things get better, you can put, you can stop hospice. And I've had plenty of pain. I've had some patients who've been kicked out of hospice, you know, (laughs) because they rallied and they, that wasn't appropriate, but why, why not take advantage of, of those things? And I mean, most hospice agencies have a palliative care piece that's sort of more traditional home care, but I don't know, my experience with the home palliative care process is not a very positive one. Whereas my experience with palliative care in the hospital and, you know, in the clinic as a partner in the, in the care is a very positive experience. And I refer to, refer to my colleagues all the time for that. But the sort of hospice light, if you will, of, of home palliative care, I don't think really gives them a lot of support. Yeah. Let me go to you know the next step here. Um, you know, to the patient where you have really run out of options and you're sort of at the place where you need to inform the patient, look, there's nothing more that I can offer, you know, not for your care, but for your cancer treatment, right? Which must be you know, incredibly difficult discussions. Um, these are probably mostly people you've cared for for a long time. What makes those conversations go well and what makes them go badly? Well, I think um, <clears throat> one of the things that we should never say to somebody is there's nothing more we can do. <laughs> right. I mean, and, and patients sometimes come to me for a second opinion or they'll report to me that 
another doctor said there's nothing more we could do. Now, I don't really know yeah, if yeah, that's what yeah. was said, but I think it's something we should never say to a patient because yeah. there's always something we can do. Yeah. And in fact, this is how I will often uh, begin the discussion about uh DNR and, and sure. you know, advanced directives to say, well, we're going to be aggressive at trying to get this pain under control. Right. We're going to be aggressive at trying to get you out of bed and moving a little bit. Um, but if it comes to the point that only, yeah. you know, having 10 people run in here and, and you know, do a, a, a resuscitative effort or put, a, put you on a breathing machine, I don't think that's a good plan because I think that'll be prolonging a bad situation. Situation rather than getting you over a hump here. Yeah. And most of the time, people agree with me. They don't always agree with right, me. Right. And, and that's a conversation that then has to be continued. But as I say, there's always something you can do. So I'm going to, let's, let's see whether we can get this bleeding under control, uh, you know, and so on. But if I, if I feel like somebody is more likely to be harmed by another round of yep. chemotherapy, I'll say that. I'll say, look, I, I mean, I think it'd be a bad decision in your current state to try more treatment because I'm worried that I may shorten your life by causing uh, complications right. that right. land you in the hospital. And I'm sure you're aware there are parameters now for you know what we consider to be good endings and and they include you know not having chemotherapy in the last 30 days of life and not being in the ICU in the last and you, these are not always predictable or right. preventable right. but you kind of know when you're when somebody tells you that they can barely get out of bed in the morning uh, that if you're going to give them more chemotherapy, that you're going, they're going to be the ones who get a complication that yeah. puts them in the hospital. And there are now data that tell us that people may live longer in hospice because you leave them alone. And I also try to make it clear to them that being in hospice is not inconsistent with the idea of getting on a plane and flying to New York for the weekend, right. you know, because it just means that we're not going to be continuing chemotherapy right now or, you know, that sort of a thing. I think that's such a key point um, because so many people, I think when you mention palliative care, mention hospice, they equate it with no care. And I'm sort of at the point where I underline that sometimes actually that's actually ratcheting up care, you know, that we're going to be doing more for you. We're going to be doing, you know, more aggressive therapy for some things, just not the things that we've been concentrating on in the past. That is, yeah, that's true. And to really take advantage of hospice, the, the person has to be in the program at least, I think, a, a couple of weeks, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. the, the notion that you go into hospice and you're, you die in 48 hours, you're, you're, it's, I think that's unfortunate. Right. I always think that that's our failing, um, uh, you know, not always, but those people who, you know, you're setting up hospice in the hospital and they don't even make it out of the hospital to get to hospice. And, you know, often that's a struggle with communication and that's the best that it could have been. Um, but it always feels like a missed opportunity when that happens. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So maybe you already said this and I'm just trying to make you re re restate it in some way. Um, 
it sounds like when you're pulling back from active care of a cancer that you don't think um, you have much to offer the cancer care, it almost sounds like you're always transitioning into offers, offering something instead. Um, well, you ha- yeah, I mean, you have to offer something, yeah. you know, uh, and I think that offer, you know, to say that, well, you know, we're going to really focus now on managing your symptoms. And and I'll often say again, you know, because patients know this already. It, it, it's the minority of patients who are right out there and not using any euphemisms. And, <laughs> right. and, and, and in fact, those patients are in some ways the most the most appealing to mm. me, those conversations, because there's, you know, it's just, well, what is my death going to be like? Yeah. And what are this, how am I going to feel? And I seize those opportunities to say that, you know, you're not likely to have some cataclysmic event. You're not likely to have severe pain if they're not having pain, pain now. You know, it's likely to be that your liver will continue to to fail and you'll get progressively sleepy and things are likely to be very calm and peaceful. Um, but again, I'll say, I don't know how, you know, I, I think we're short on time and I think we need to decide how we're going to spend that time. And I don't think we should spend that time having you run back and forth to the hospital to get chemotherapy that's not likely to help and might make you feel worse. But you can't, I mean, I think almost never would I say, well, I think, you know, we'll we're not going to do, yeah. do treatment and go back to your primary yeah. care doctor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's we're, not fair to the primary care right. doctor. We're done here. <laughs> <laughs> um, for a last question, I've had very much the same experience where there are patients who no matter how long you've taken care of them, you seem to never be able to have that very honest conversation about you know, this is what's ahead because the person never really seems like they want to hear it. And then you have those people who sometimes, you know, surprise me with how open and clear they are and how definitive they are in their questions and what they want to know. Do you think that that's just the person and their entire life's experience? Or do you think there's something that you can do you know, in your in your conversations with the patients over the last whatever months or years, to make that conversation easier, that sort of open, honest conversation about the end. Um, I I don't think I know the answer to that. I think it may really be a function of of sort of how they approach uh, you know d- difficult aspects of their lives and how they approach. Uh, tough times. I guess my experience is that people that are uh, more highly educated tend to be more willing uh, to have the the more open conversation. Um, and but not but it isn't always that way. Right. I mean, uh, and you know, there's a lot of things written about how to have these conversations and. Or, or what we should be doing about such situations. And I, you know, I, I don't always feel comfortable about it myself. So, for example, the idea, well, you know, you ought to start having conversations about advanced directives when you're first meeting the patient. And I don't like to do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just, you know, if I'm going to talk to them, well, this is the stage of your cancer and this is what the options are and, you know, so on and so forth. 
Oh, and let's talk about what your thoughts are for the end of, you know, <laughs> right. I, I, I just can't do that. Now, on the other hand, it's totally wrong not to have the conversation yeah. until 10 minutes before they're about <laughs> to be intubated. Right. You know, you need to do it at the right time. But, but I have trouble sort of doing that right from the outset. Um, I, but I think it, it just people sometimes, I don't know, I guess uh, people that ha have been running businesses in their lives, for example, yeah. tend to be one to let's just get on with it. Tell yeah. me, you know, yeah. let me have it, doc. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree with you so much about the kind of advanced care planning conversations that those conversations without context almost always lead nowhere. You sort of ha get the, well, I want to be treated aggressively until it's not going to help me anymore. Um, but once there is context and people sort of understand where they are in the process, what the disease is, what their symptoms are, then those tend to be very productive conversations. And you have to hope that that opportunity comes up at a reasonable time. Right. And and then I sometimes will hear from, you know, when I'm attending on service, I'll hear from the house staff about a patient I don't know at this point. And they say, well, you know, she wants everything done. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, I mean, I sort of get why yeah. somebody yeah. would say that, yeah. but people don't really know what everything right, right, is right, right. in that situation. And it need, you know, people's expectations need to be tempered. But I... I mean, I think eventually people, most people are able to have some conversation. And one of the things you can ask that is helpful sometimes is, you know, what are your goals for the next few weeks yeah. what, or yeah. the next few months? What do you want to see yeah. happen? And then, you know, you can sort of tailor it. I mean, sometimes it's I just don't want to be in any pain. Yeah. Sometimes it's, well, they, there's some big family event coming up that yeah. they want to, you yeah. know, be alive for, and you have to sort of plan your treatment around that. Well, Phil, thank you very much for this conversation. This is very helpful, and I think you, you threw out a lot of pearls, which were very helpful. So thanks for joining us for this episode of the Clinical Excellence Podcast. We're sponsored by the Buxbaum Institute for Clinical Excellence at the University of Chicago. Please feel free to reach out to us with your thoughts and ideas on the Buxbaum Institute Twitter page. The music for the Clinical Excellence Podcast is courtesy of Dr. Malin Martinez. <laughs>